I, I am convinced there is now like at least 30 companies trying to platformize this and like 29 of them will absolutely go nowhere and one of them will be the next Amazon. I'm convinced. Well, it's almost how, how you describe it. It's, it's almost like a heist. It's like a sort of a bank rob heist that you have to you have to do every single day, and you have to get it right every single time. You would be surprised. I think, like tongue in cheek, there's a lot of similarities between planning a perfect heist and planning a magical delivery experience. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Heads Talk with me, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter, the podcast where we talk to C-level executives, leaders of institutions and heads of multinationals. What are the current topics? They talk, we listen. My guest today is at the heart of what this current series is all about, retail, tech and success. He's the Chief Technology Officer of a well-known food and grocery delivery company. And we're going to find out all about how this organisation and its subsidiaries fared during a very fast-moving technology growth period. As we approach the concluding episodes of this retail series 2022, I'm really glad to have this individual on the show and look forward to the conversation ahead. But before we get into that, here is a brief message. This episode is sponsored by Axia. Axia is the leading private cloud platform in the Alessian and Matamos ecosystem, combining intelligent solutions with security and control. Axia's clients profit from digitalization and automation of critical business processes in a cloud and hybrid architecture. 150 staff provide migration, engineering, and support services to over 200 leading organizations in 32 countries. Heads Talk Podcast with your host, Elaine Pringle Schwitter. A veteran in the engineering field, Benjamin Mann has spent more than 20 years in leading travel and fintech companies and is today the Chief Technology Officer at Food Panda. As CTO of the food delivery platform with the largest footprint across the Asia Pacific region, Benjamin leads the regional technology team in their efforts to build a best in class service for riders, restaurants, and consumers alike. Food Panda is scaling up its tech hub as business continues to grow across the APAC region. Under Benjamin's stewardship, the Food Panda tech team work collaboratively on complex and challenging issues while facilitating food and grocery deliveries for millions of consumers each day. His current priority is to build engineering teams that can make a big impact, tackle the biggest challenges in the, of their careers, and at the same time, learn from among the best talents in the industry. Let's now have a conversation. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Benjamin to Head Talk. Many thanks for being with us today. Hi Elaine, thank you so much for having me. Very excited. Okay, it's all about technology with this episode, and I and I think um, that will please many of my listeners in this space. Let's get right into uh, into this with an introductory question. Food Panda and you, tell my listeners about your role. Um, I briefly mentioned it in the introduction, but you can elaborate on that within the organization. You recently celebrated the eighth year anniversary of Food Panda Philippines. Am I right in saying that? Correct, and the tenth year anniversary of Food Panda as a whole. All right. Okay, so tell so me about I, your role in greater detail. You, you can describe I, it a lot better than I can. Sure, sure, sure. So I lead the tech 
team of Full Panda, we are around 800 engineers around the world in four main engineering hubs, Singapore, Taiwan, Berlin, and Istanbul. Mm-hmm. And we build a global platform for Food Panda and other brands under the Delivery Hero umbrella. So we're in this unique in this unique position to have customers from nearly half of the world going mm-hmm. through our platform every day, which is, is very exciting and gives us a lot of great opportunities and challenges at, at a truly global scale. Mm-hmm. Big part of my role is to work together with, with our CEO and delivery hero C-levels on setting the tech strategy for the next two to three years. Where do we invest? What new technologies do we want to go after? What do we not want to go after? Which is a very often an, an underrated part of the job to choose what not to do. Mm-hmm. Um, hiring, making sure that we have the right culture, that we have the right engineering practices, that we build products that turn users into fans, which is what we're all about in technology. That keeps me pretty busy during my days. <laughs> I can imagine. Um, am I right in saying that it is a great time to be a CTO, especially with all the, the current fast pace in technological developments, you know, AI, VR, metaverse, all that sort of stuff? I think it is a great time to see to be a CTO, but I've, I've, I've been an engineer all my life. I've never done anything else than technology. <laughs> so for me, for 25 years now, more than 25 years now, uh, it was always the best time to be in tech, right? It's, <laughs> okay, you're biased then. <laughs> uh, is and, is this time a little bit better than normal? <laughs> I think it's more interesting probably than previous times due to multiple factors coming together at the same time a rapid acceleration of technology in itself Mm -hmm. Um, things getting more global and larger in general across all industries Mm -hmm. and then a relatively unique global situation with pandemics and economic downturns that all play together to to make the challenges a little bit more challenging um, than they may have been in the past. And on the other hand, on the tech side, we are entering now an age of technology that 25 years ago you read in science fiction books, yes. right? If you read classic neuromancer cyberpunk novels in 1998, everything that they do, maybe with the exception of the, the cyberspace as it was defined back then, it's here already, right? Um, and many, many parts of the industry, we're still a bit unsure about some of the emerging technology yeah. trends. How will they play out? Uh, and that makes it probably a bit more exciting to be a CTO today than it was maybe 10 years ago. But on the other hand, I wasn't a CTO 10 years ago, so I would be guessing. Well, even so, you were an engineer. It's probably more exciting mm-hmm. being an engineer today than perhaps 20 years ago. Actually, for my listeners, just briefly um, elaborate on the, the current relationship between Food, Food Panda and Delivery Hero. You said Food Panda's been established now 10 years. What's mm-hmm. the relationship between the two? Delivery Hero owns Food Panda, right? So we are part of the Delivery Hero large global organization, um, and that's the relationship in itself. All right, okay. Um, let, let's expand our conversation about the sort of the current digital age. Um, mm. Where are we today with the combination of tech and food delivery organizations? What are the challenges and exciting things happening in this space? So I think if you look back Where are we today? If you look back 20 years ago at food delivery, it was Mm -hmm. a non-tech business, right? I still remember this when I was like 15 and I wanted a pizza at 8 8 p.m. in Vienna. 
I needed a flyer and a phone and a lot of luck to find something that still <laughs> open and would deliver me a, a pizza at that time, right? The only thing that's still the same is you still need someone to make the pizza and for the vast majority of our users, you still need a phone. But you Everything engineers are working else, on that, right? <laughs> Everything else has completely been changed and transformed exclusively by technology, right? So food delivery is one of these industries that as a consumer, and, and, and as a user, mm -hmm. it looks deceptively simple, right? You open the app, you find your favorite restaurant, you add it to yeah. cart, you pay, and magically, uh, 30 minutes later, hopefully, your food arrives at your door. If not, you're going to be hangry. Uh, but in normal cases, like 30 minutes later, the food arrives at the door. And, and people don't really think about the process that yeah. goes behind in making this happen in near real time. We need to connect with our partners. We need to inform them. You need to have X, Y, Z of dishes ready for someone to pick it up in 16 minutes. Then we need to tell a delivery uh, rider, you need to be at this restaurant in like probably 15 minutes and find your way back mm -hmm. to somewhere in the city or in the delivery area. So that all needs to play together. And at the same time, while this happens, the restaurant needs to actually prepare the dishes. Um, so it's a bit like standard e-commerce on super steroids, like compressed in a, in, into a 30-minute uh, time window. Yeah. Um, and that gives us very, very little room for failures or, or, or even things to go slightly haywire. Um, made even more so challenging that as a delivery app like Food Panda, we have very little control about the entire environment that we're operating in. We can make an educated guess when our users will be hungry. We can make a pretty good guess what they will be ordering. Um, what we don't know already is like how busy is the restaurant. Um, what we don't know is like if there's a traffic jam that yeah. appears magically while the rider is on mm -hmm. his way or it starts some of the torrential rains start plaguing Singapore where I'm based right now. Um, and still we need to make that work so that you get your food within the 30 minutes, right? Um, and that requires us to be incredibly on top of the game in all the things that we do in tech because it's, as mm -hmm. we affect this, this uh, mm -hmm. behavior for millions of users and millions of riders and, and, and restaurants around the world. Mm -hmm. it, there's really very little. It's, it's, it's not, almost how, how you describe it. It's, it's almost like a heist. It's like a sort of a bank rob heist that you have to you have to do every single day, and you have to get it right every single time. Um, you, you you would be surprised. I think like tongue in cheek, there's a lot of similarities between planning a perfect heist and planning a magical delivery experience. Stuff can't go sideways during these things. I, I, I can imagine. And, and, and with that, would I be right in saying that is speed of delivery the key, the main factor in this industry more so than others? Ah, it depends a little bit on location, time of the day, so geographical location, and, and, and also the purchase intent of the user. So uh, it is a significant part of the business. There's, uh, there's no question about it, but selection is equally important, right? Uh, presentation of the menu as we have with the app 
is 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 very critical to the to the ordering behavior of the user. Mm -hmm. It's having the right healthy options, having the right combinations of of multiple renders, multiple restaurants where you can order from. It all plays a role. So yes, delivery speed in itself is important. Mm -hmm. um, but what's more important is not to be late. <laughs> so we found that users are perfectly fine, most cases with like a 35 minute delivery, if it's really, really there in 35 minutes. Um, they are absolutely not fine with a 35 minute delivery if we tell them it's there in 25 minutes. All right. Okay. It's, it's, I think it's about letting the customers know what's going on and then they'll be a little bit more forgiving if you mm. don't deliver on time, as long as you keep them informed. That, that's the yeah. advantage, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Right. You know, let's just talk about digital transformation generally. Uh, you know, it's moved on from, you know, upgrading a company's, company's operations to include digital interactivity or interrelated stuff. Now it's an, a really an integral part of um, delivering and, and customer experience. There's a lot of talk about this, but what about the internal operations? We always talk about delivering to the customers, but the sort of the internal mechanics, machines behind the things. You know, you talked about people don't think about the process behind what the stuff that's going on. Uh, you know, what does that look like internally within a, a company organization for staff, you know, for the business and operations in general? Where can we really see the digital transformation? I think areas as so from the outside. You yeah. can clearly see it in yeah. the existence of delivery apps, right? So yeah. that all of our current industry never went through this digital trans to this classical digital transformation experience because they're just born digitally, right? With, yeah. with, without that, it would just not exist. Internally, it's highly invisible, but where it has great impact is in the areas of vendor and, and restaurant and partner and rider onboarding, mm. internal operations on how to stock a warehouse, um, how to ensure logistics optimization. So fancy industry term for how how do we ensure that it's really 25 minutes when we say it's yeah. 25 you, you minutes. You've got stuff in the right place sort of thing, yeah. Um, so, so that is all. I, that is the areas that the users don't see, but it's also the areas where a large part of the magic happens, especially if you're dealing with hundreds and hundreds and thousands mm. of restaurants and riders on, on a real-time basis. Um, there a lot of things have changed over the last 10 years from starting at a smaller scale and doing a lot of things very manual mm. manually onboarding typing things into menu generating systems to automating this mm -hmm. auto correcting mm -hmm. images and all these kind of things so this is where a lot of of, of transformation is happening mm -hmm. still happening because a significant part of uh this entire industry space is still manual to a certain extent. Right, right, right. Moving that a little bit. And, and, and do you have the sort of maybe more so in the West, sort of the, the old attitude of building on top of legacy systems and the, the, the issues that come with that? Is in our industry a bit lesser of, of, an, of an issue? If there's legacy systems, it's usually our own. <laughs> that we built for a business that was just by orders of magnitude smaller and they need to be gradually replaced, upgraded, extended, mm -hmm. which is 
part of the everyday life of, of growth, right? Um, we are luckily in a business, luckily, so you can't see me making air quotes, we are luckily in a business where we are less dependent on external legacy systems. So we have a bit of our own destiny in our hand, um, which makes internal transformation usually less of a hassle. All right. Okay, that's good. That's good. And I suppose it's the the young nature of the business as well. Mm. We're talking about, yes. we're talking about 30, 40 years ago. Yeah. That sort of stuff. Okay. And still with, I'm quite fascinated by this. Still with you know with your engineering, perhaps software mm. engineering mind headset, and the move. Let's. I'm looking more at the internal process. I know what as a customer what that looks like in terms of the external um, mm. the delivery for me and how I use it. But the move from single to multi to omni-channel approach. How was that uh, as a technical delivery? And where are we with this, with Food Panda, sorry? Again, in, in our business, so the classic single multi omnichannel approach, it, it, it doesn't really exist so much in our business because most of our business by default was already born somewhere between multi to omnichannel. Um, and it has firmly moved into omnichannel in the last probably six-ish years or so, and it had just stayed there, right? We offer our users, no matter where they are and what they use, a way to consume our services and the, 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 the services offered by our restaurant partners. So for us, it's this entire approach is just part of our DNA and much less transitional, uh, transitionary than it is in most other industries. Again, oh. luckily or, or unluckily remains to be seen, uh, but that's where it is today. <laughs> we live in hope. Okay, you know, in, in this series, I, I find that one of the things that fascinates me is getting a viewpoint, a perspective from the guests know yourselves of the understanding or their understanding of customer behavior and how mm. that dictates operations um mm. I, I want to ask you first how is this you know customer behavior fundamentally different in europe as opposed to asia in your business perhaps give us a couple of examples and i know you it's kind of a sweeping statement european mm. european don't all behave in the same way and asia mm. don't all behave in the same way but something that's very fundamentally different that you can just pull out and give us a couple of examples so i think where to start because it is fundamentally different even within regions right to give an example on on the platform that we're building I'm picking four countries right now. We have users in Istanbul, we have users in Stockholm, we have users in Taipei, and we have users in Laos, for example. Mm -hmm. These users have very little in common, except mm -hmm. that they're human. Uh, they have completely different order behavior. They have a completely different expectation of how an app especially an app in that space, should behave, how it should look like, how it should be designed. It is, the, the similarities are very small and usually centered around certain part of uh, the user experience. So no user likes to be kept waiting. <laughs> That's a safe thing to say. Um, but how a user in these countries 
reacts to certain offers that we put out, how he reacts to designs that we try in the in the in the UI UX space, how his time using the app differs so greatly across destinations, even for the same order. Let's take an international chain like a McDonald's, right? And let's assume it's the same order, it's like a Happy Meal and, and, and whatever. You can see a dramatic difference in the time that a user in various parts of uh, the world stays on the app to complete the literally the same process. And we invest quite heavily into tooling that we can see, okay, where are the users looking around in the app? Where are they spending their time? So we, we find that certain users in, in certain geographical locations are much more visually drawn. So they want like large images of the dishes, right? And in other locations, small lists with small images work much better across the entire user population. Certain parts of Asia like to have a bit of more of a decorative design. So then a lot of moving things and animated icons than classical uh, European users. They want it very, static, uh, very minimalistic design mm -hmm. and having the right design choices for these users dramatically changes the effectiveness of the business. So that's number one. Mm -hmm. Then the buying behavior and the ordering behavior is also very different, right? Where you have certain locations where uh, the orders are usually much smaller, like for one or two people, then you have other locations where it's usually the orders are for the entire family that live <laughs> in the the house together um which creates new logistics mm, problems um, and that gets even more differential if you go into the grocery space right um which is also very common in, in europe grocery deliveries are a bit of a newer thing in many many countries right whereas in asia that's a tried and true and and, and well done approach so large grocery weekly grocery shopping with dozens if not multiple dozens of items in in the shopping basket are very common here um whereas in europe it's more like on demand oh i'm cooking and i found out i'm missing like three items so i'm ordering these very quickly so that's classical behavior right um and that puts us in very interesting situations because our job is to build a product that works for all users and all segments equally well mm -hmm. but <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm listening to you and I think this must be so, so confusing because a thing with a brand, you you kind of want to maintain some kind of consistency across mm. the board in different countries. And mm. what you just described me as uh, on a psychological level is different in different countries, mm. on a behavior level is different in different countries. You have to tailor, superly tailor, almost personalize for countries, sub-countries, subsets, you know. How do you maintain a consistent brand? So what we invest very heavily in, in, in our brands and our, in our app design, we have this core branding design system mm -hmm. that certain things always will look and feel the same, right? Our logos, our color schemes, the way we present certain information that's just deeply ingrained in our DNA. And then what our design allows us to do and the app that we built and the, the ecosystem, we can subtly alter this to the tastes of the users in specific markets. So the app in Taiwan looks like a full Panda app would look in Laos, for example, 
but there's nuances. It's a bit more animated, maybe in Taiwan. It's a bit more playful, and in Laos it looks slightly different. So we alter this. We can alter this very heavily or very subtly, depending on on the users. And with personalization baked into this design, we could can and and actually are altering this specifically to certain user segments or even to individual users if we would want to go down to that level. Right. Okay. You know, thank God for digitalization because it enables you to do that. Can you imagine trying to do something like that 20 years ago in a sort of no, paper-based way? That, that'd be absolutely impossible. Okay. Um, just a quick question, you know, because mm. you're based in Singapore, and my, my listeners, mm. if they're not aware of it already, they, they should know that you're in Singapore, you've been there for a while and you're working in that space. Um, and you're, you're a European individual. Um, so what can uh, European customers learn from or take away or take advantage of in terms of a behavior type that is clear to see in Asian customers? It's just a difficult question because I don't think there is something that you can learn or, or improve even upon. It's just fundamental different cultural differences i think if there's anything that uh european users probably could learn from from users that we have in asia and even that's already a vast generalization given our, our i know, I know yeah. there is, um asian users in general um are more open to try new experiences in 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 an app system right so that's why super apps for example they just usually come out of asia or and many of them come out of asia china or southeast asia because you are a bit more used to this phenomenon like that you can have i don't know uh groceries and food deliveries and 10 other services coming from from the same app, whereas they don't really take off so much in Europe um, because European users very often they like one thing to do one thing. <laughs> if, it, if it works, why change it sort of thing? If, if it works, why change it? Um, and that makes it sometimes hard uh, to translate businesses across from Asia to Europe. Um, and that's why some of these, these trends struggle a bit when they come to Europe or even to the US. Um, I think it, it's not a question of whether you can learn something from that. You can learn a lot of this as a provider of these services, but I think it's something... It may seem uh, it's a cultural thing that perhaps... It, it is more, it should be very much open. Very, very much a cultural thing. So I, I, and I try always to tell my engineering teams, it's not our job to convince the user that his behavior is mm. not correct, right? Mm. Our job to understand why our customer expects this certain kind of behavior. And if we think there's a better way and he just doesn't know about it, then we can gently teach this, right? <laughs> or offer this. But very often customers will just prefer something more, <laughs> even yeah. if there's objectively maybe something that would work better. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Right. Okay. That, that's interesting. I think it's, and you sort of meet the customer where they're at and um, hmm. introduce them to new things. Well, not for me. If, if I'm quite comfortable where things are working, um, I'm not really going to, unless it's a vast generalization. Let's look at um, 
social commerce um, hmm. for, for a bit and your thoughts on the, the, the social commerce explosion in Asia. Uh, they're leading in this space, um, in particular China. Where is it at at the moment? Uh, I think it ties very nicely to the previous, yes. previous question because living in Asia, I have this strange deja vu. I remember when I was like 12 years old and I was allowed like, or I snuck out of my bedroom and, and wanted to see what my grandparents are watching. They were watching like Home Shopping Network and QVC on TV where there's like people just buying stuff in a live TV show. And I never really understood it as, as a child, to be honest, right? Um, flash forward 30 years, that's the exact same thing happening just now just with a vastly bigger user base, especially in China. Um, the trends in this space are just exploding and it's getting more and more popular. And the, the top rated influencers in this space move so much goods that many, many small businesses would have an eye-opening experience if they look at their sales volume. So in Asia, that's clearly has moved from and interesting experiments into becoming quickly, especially in China, becoming quickly a extremely solid segment of this entire e-commerce space and the fastest growing segment in that, sp in that space. Right? Mm. Um, and as we've seen, various attempts to transfer this to Europe, right? Whether it's Facebook shop or Instagram yeah. shop or TikTok shop is probably the best example. They struggled mightily, mightily with this low viewers, a lot of difficulties in logistics also. So that's that's one of these classical concepts where it will take time uh, for users to get used to, but I have no doubt, no doubt whatsoever in my mind that this is a thing that is here to stay and it will have a relatively dramatic in, uh, impact on the e-commerce space in general. Mm. It will visit a European space uh, very soon. <laughs> so mm. people watch out for this. Um, mm. I've had previous guests saying it's coming into Europe. It may not be there yet, but it's going to be in Europe and it, will, and it will stay. There were soft launches on this already. And again, they struggle, but that happens sometimes, right? You try something, doesn't work. It's none of these none of these big industry players are saying, ah, oh, you know, it didn't work first time in Europe. Let's say, man, let's just forget about the yeah. people in Europe. And say, let's go somewhere else. They will learn, iterate on it, and they will come with version two, three, four, maybe, and it will come. So your previous guest was very right. It might not yeah. be here yet, but it will be here very soon. It's also, um, we won't talk about this in great detail. I'll move on to the next question, but you just made me think of something. Also in gaming and advertising, it's really modifying some of the ways organizations are marketing and advertising their products through the gaming apps and stuff like that. And I think that's probably obviously probably bigger in the Asian market, but it mm. will be quite big in the US and in and in Europe at some point soon. Absolutely. Okay. Hmm. All right, um, let's address one of the current hot topics of the hmm. day, sustainability drive hmm. and meeting ESG targets. Um, what role is Food Panda playing in the circular economy, if any? So we are in a lucky position to, due to our global size, both in terms of consumers and, and restaurants and riders, to impact 
behavior here positively in multiple ways and multiple angles at the same time, right? So we, quite a while ago, um, we changed our app to default opt into plastic cutlery. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas previously, like years back, we would like just give free plastic cutlery to everyone, right? We've opted out of this and made this opt in so that users actively need to re re request it. And it has completely changed the behavior of the users. And very few people, if any, still request this. And that saves hundreds of millions of plastic pieces of plastic every mm -hmm. year, um, which is very, very impactful. We are also quite heavily investing and, and working with companies that go into reusable packages, which is another big issue in, in, in our space, right? How do we reduce packaging waste um, and, and finding ways to have reusable packages that for the next order you can return it and uh, it gets recycled and everything, which is very impactful. And I think probably the biggest areas where we're starting to, to go into is the huge problem of food waste in uh, across the world, where we started to cooperate with restaurants and supermarkets that have a lot of perfectly fine food um, that they would throw out probably in the next 24 hours. And we find ways to bring that food to people that they need it or reduce it and, and, and package it better um, mm -hmm. and tons of food being thrown away every year. And I think that these three things together put us in a position where we can probably say we have a significant impact in this circular economy and, and sustainability across our user base around the world. And I'm very happy about that. Oh, thank you for that um, comprehensive answer. Uh, everyone knows that that is so needed in that space. Um, let's look at the promise of AI. Hmm. Um, so how is AI showing itself up in this sector? What fascinates you in this space that you'd like to share with us? So AI is one of these topics where, as a technologist, <clears throat> I'm, of course, massively fascinated. It's the stuff that I read about in science fiction novels when I was a kid, right? And to actually see things like Dali right now uh, around image generation, Coming into real life is just fantastic. It's a little bit like magic. <laughs> um, <laughs> I can hear your excitement. It is, it is really one of the, the most fascinating topics. Um, but where there's a lot of light, there's also a lot of shadow. Um, yes. And yeah. there's a, it, it's, an, it's a field that is plagued a little bit with what I like to call vanity applications, where mm. people slap an AI tag onto something that's perfectly fine doable without AI. Um, just having AI in it makes it sound better. But outside of that, in our industry, is especially the field of machine learning clearly has a big impact on any space where we deal with recommendations, right? How do I tell you when you are opening the, the app the first time, which pizza, and you just had pizza in my app, right? Mm -hmm. which they should be recommended, right? Um, so that's that's clearly one big area of, of, of mm -hmm. machine learning that can assist. Another is more a bit on the back end side of things, like how do we ensure and and enable our partners to seamlessly create menus uh, that are appealing to our customers? Because many of our restaurant partners 
have probably a solid approach on how they create their offline menu for, for, the, for the restaurant itself, right? But behavior of, of customers online is just different and different things are important. So to automatically be able to suggest do this, do this instead, or to autocorrect some of the menus that we uh, receive is, is, is a very promising area um, and, and gives a lot of benefits to our, our restaurants and our customers. Um, so that's the second space. And of course, the always fascinating topic of fraud and fraud combat, um, <laughs> where it's, it's like, I don't know if, if you and your listeners are familiar with this old cartoon, Spy versus Spy, you know, yep. the, the two spy cartoon yep. things that trying to constantly outwit each other. It's a great, <laughs> great cartoon of my childhood. Um, <clears throat> but modern fraud has become a spy versus spy game, right? There is not one day where some fascinating, fascinatingly brilliant person wakes up and says, huh, I found a new way. I think I found a new way to attack someone online. Um, yeah. And it's our job. Um, and we rely heavily on machine learning also in this space to protect our users and our restaurants from this as good as we can. Um, so that's, that's the third space where it's, it's practically an arms race between us and browsers, which is interesting and exciting at the same time. Right. Okay, that's interesting. You know, I, I'd like to end this episode um, of Head's Talk with a question that's asked to all of the guests in, the, in this series, and, and that is, Benjamin, what is the solution that you think has yet to be developed, but sits firmly within the retail world once available? Personalized in-store experience. Personalized in-store experience. We have become adequately to really good in personalizing the experience for our users online. So if you want to shop something at your favorite e-commerce site, if you want to shop on, or order food on, on our apps, we are in a position to personalize this experience to you very, very well, right? Um, we can recommend you the right things based mm -hmm. on your purchase history. Mm -hmm. We can uh, highlight you and expose you to things that we think you would like. Um, and very often it turns out to be right and we can broaden, we can connect you to with new partners. Mm -hmm. So we offer a very almost intimate way of, of ordering food, right? Um, very familiar. Now, if you take the same approach, and you walk into a restaurant, even if you've been there before, unless, or any shop, right? Whether it's a clothing shop or restaurant, doesn't even matter, right? Mm -hmm. Unless the person you're talking to in that restaurant knows you personally and remembers you, you're basically coming yeah. in as an anonymous customer, which by default always makes for a subpar experience. Um, so whoever invents the right solution, <clears throat> and the right technology platform to bridge that gap, to allow restaurants, stores, any kind of service provider mm -hmm. with your permission to personalize your in-store experience based on, on your profile, um, that will be a radical game changer, right? Especially if you combine it with things like AR or even the current science fiction around metaverse, if you flash forward 10 years into 
technology enabling a personalized in-store experience the moment you walk into a store, should you desire to have it, that's important, it should not be forced on every customer, but should you desire to opt into it, I think that will be a complete game changer for the, for the retail industry in itself. You know, that is a, f- a fascinating answer because I one of the guests I've interviewed that's going to be released quite soon is doing something very similar to that. His name's Trevor Sumner and he's the CEO of Perch. They're not doing it for restaurants, but they're doing it for in-store grocery stores and pharmaceuticals. Mm. And they're doing something like that where you're walking and you have that borderline personal experience or that experience where you have more information about the product that you're looking at and, and working on or about to purchase that sort of stuff so that's interesting that you, you mentioned that I don't think they'd quite reach the stage of what you're, you're, you're describing in terms of the full sort of personalized in-store experience but they are working on something like that watch out for that episode I think you, you'll probably find that quite fascinating for sure for sure there, there's so much really fascinating development in in its infant stages right now um so I, I cannot wait for 10 years in 10 years maybe i can walk into a supermarket and not spend like five minutes to remember where is the bread that i want to buy because i get lost in the supermarket all the time now it, it will have something that will present the bread that you want to you when you walk into the it's hi benjamin it's you again sort of thing <laughs> you'll get kind of, kind of, that would be so good that's excellent. Benjamin Mann, a very informative conversation today on Headstorm. Many thanks for your time and insights. It's been a blast. Thank you so much for having me. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for joining me today on this episode of Heads Talk. Don't forget to subscribe to the show via my website, elainepringle.com forward slash Heads Talk, wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, I'd like to thank our sponsors, guests, and you for helping to make the show possible. Please join me next time where I'll be featuring more executives, C-suite leaders, and heads of multinationals. Heads Talk Podcast with your host, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter.